Heavenly Father, please bless these children as they go. Would you teach them? Would you meet them? Would you form them and conform them after the image of your Son? And we, we pray that same thing for ourselves this morning as we have your word opened to us. See, we need to be conformed. See, um, Lord, we pray for transformation. We pray f- that we would fall more deeply in love with you. Lord, we pray that we would indeed be your beloved bride. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor John led us through the first half of John chapter 3 into Jesus's profound interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus, highlighted by the most famed verse in all of Scripture. Let's say it together, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Some of us know different translations, that's okay, but what a glorious and gloriously clear promise this is to behold. John 3.16 successfully condenses the entire message of the Bible into the size of a bouillon cube. Have you ever used bouillon cubes to make soup? John 3.16 sort of distills the entire cosmic purposes of God into a bouillon cube and lets us know the proper flavor of Holy Scripture. Amen? Now, by contrast, the second half of John 3, our text for today, is far less familiar and a good bit less comfortable. But it's punctuated by an equally potent, if somewhat more mysterious, bullion cube set forth in John 3.36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now what, we might ask, is the relationship between believing in the Son and this parallel requirement of obeying the Son? What's the relationship between John 3.16 and John 3.36? And what's the relationship between the love of God and the wrath of God? One of my original mentors in the faith was a former middle school teacher, and he told me once about an interaction that he had with a rebellious student. Now, this teacher was an incredibly kind and patient man. Meanwhile, this student was constantly misbehaving, constantly distracting the other students, and constantly rebelling against his teacher's authority. And after many attempts at showing mercy and several attempts at more moderate discipline, the teacher finally pulled the student aside to have a heart-to-heart. He spoke frankly with the young man and said, I think by now you have had every opportunity to see that I care about you and that I want you to succeed in this class. But there's something you must understand, which is that I also love and care about the other students in this class. The teacher continued with a gentle tone, but with firmness. He said, it's my responsibility to create and maintain a good learning environment for all the students. And if you set yourself against that, 
you will find that I am against you. The same care I have shown toward you will actually be working against you. In other words, he was warning the student, I won't change, but your experience of me will. What a profound lesson for this young man to ponder, and what a profound window into the heart of God if we only have ears to hear it. The caring teacher and the disciplinarian are indeed the same man. Likewise, the love of God and the wrath of God are actually two sides of the same coin. The fire of his love is the very kiln of his judgment. God's presence is never without effect. In one case, it prunes. In the other, it cuts off. These attributes that at first appear to be at odds with one another are in the simplicity of the divine nature, in full accord. For God never changes. As Hebrews 3.8 puts it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, our experience of him can change. That is both the hope and the latent warning of the gospel. It's true that God proves his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. But it's also true that God has no love, none whatsoever, for the sin that is in us. That ancient self-centered infection that's diametrically opposed to the just nature of God. In other words, God's, he, he loves his original creation. God loves our truest self. Not what we've become in Adam. Indeed, God's wrath hovers over sinful humanity like the gavel of a perfectly just judge. But the good news is that in Christ, the sacrificial love has paved the way back to eternal life, back to intimacy, back to our status as the very apple of God's eye. There's so much more to say, so let's open up to our passage today, beginning in John 3, verse 22. If you're not there with me yet, it's on page 888 in your pew Bibles. And verse 22 begins... After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. And I just want to make a few like rapid-fire points about why it's important to read Scripture closely. Uh, because first, if we only had this passage without the surrounding context, we would naturally infer that Jesus himself was involved in the baptizing, which would be sort of odd because it seems to be something more like the preparatory baptism of John the Baptist and not Christian baptism in the threefold name of God. But John 4.2 clarifies that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. You see that? Glance forward. So always, re always read the surrounding context. Second, it says in verse 23 that John was baptizing at Anon near Salim. And then it offers, uh, excuse me, and, and what this offers is, is a, an obvious 
But a uh, deceptively important reason why John was baptizing there, because water was plentiful there. Now that makes sense. So why do I say that it's important? Because these small geographical details highlight the fact that this is a real story taking place in the universe that actually exists. Not a once upon a time fairy tale. It's not a philosophical abstraction. Right now, Bishop Neil and Marsha are leading a tour in Israel along with several of our brothers and sisters from Incarnation. And one of the most common reaction on these trips is this sense of awe that comes over people when they realize that these places mentioned in the Bible are real. And they have real archaeological remains. Some of these sites, like the Temple Mount, have always been known. Others, like St. Peter's hometown of Capernaum, have been discovered more recently. Some are still yet to be found. But the point is that our faith is a historical faith, a geographical faith, a faith grounded in history. Just as the very creeds we confess state that Jesus was, not, 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 not just that he was crucified, but more specifically, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, an actual Roman governor over the first century Judea. So we must give proper weight to the historicity of the Christian faith. All right, a third point about reading scriptures carefully pertains to verse 24, which offers a side note that John had not yet been put in prison. Now, the other Gospels tell us this story, but the Gospel of John does not. Therefore, if we reflect for a moment, we realize that the author of this fourth Gospel is expecting the readers to already be familiar with the content of the Synoptic Gospels. You see that? Not only that, but it also lets us know that the events of the first few chapters of the Gospel of John, including the wedding at Cana, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, all happen before the start of the Gospel of Mark, which doesn't even pick up the story until, quote, after John the Baptist is arrested, Mark 1.14. And I'll just mention that this chronology uh, is also followed in the show The Chosen, which is awesome, and you should watch it. Okay. So, as we study these opening verses carefully, we learn about the importance of reading the surrounding context, about the real-world historicity of our faith, and about how the different parts of Scripture sync up with one another. Now, admittedly, none of these points has anything to do with the central point of this passage, but it's more like gathering up the coins when you're playing Super Mario. It gives you a sense of the rich treasures that are to be found through a close reading of God's Word. And I want to encourage you. Some of you are like, I never miss a coin. I'm just like OCD about it. I want to encourage you. If you've drifted away from setting aside time for serious Bible study, friends, perhaps Lent is a time to pick that back up. Maybe you could begin by just saying, I'm going to just fast from breakfast every day and instead sit down and read scripture. That would be in accord with Jesus' 40-day fast, where he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right, moving on to the second paragraph. 
I think we began to inch closer to the center of the story. Essentially, Jesus' fame had been growing, and some of John the Baptist's disciples expressed jealousy for the sake of their own rabbi. Um, <clears throat> but John emphatically rejects the idea of even receiving one ounce of the attention that heaven has reserved for the Messiah. Now John answers them in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. Now we learned this weeks ago, he is Saint John the forerunner, the one whose role was to prepare the way for the Messiah. But here we get a new image for understanding John the Baptist, that of sort of the best man in a wedding, as Sarah was just saying to us. Verse 29 says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So it's not proper for the groomsmen to Michael Scott it and hoard all the attention from the bride and the bridegroom that will be totally antithetical to his purpose. Therefore, John continues, this joy of mine is now complete. In Greek, the verb is plerao, or fulfilled. In other words, now that he's made his preparations for the bridegroom, John's prophesied role has been joyfully fulfilled. He can fade to the background. He must increase, John says of Jesus, but I must decrease. It's only proper. Now, I have the juiciest illustration of this point. I'm so excited to share it with you this morning. It comes from the church calendar, and I bet very few of you have heard this. Are you guys ready? Did you know that the official feast day for John the Baptist takes place on June 24th? No, you didn't know that. Which is the summer solstice, the longest day of the Christian year. And meanwhile, the birth of Jesus is famously celebrated on December 25th, the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year. So what? Someone might say, what does this have to do with anything? Well, the church chose these days for their symbolic significance. Namely, because every subsequent day following the feast of Jesus' birth the length of day will only increase. And meanwhile, every day after the feast of John the Baptist, the length of day will only decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. I mean, come on. <laughs> Our ancient brothers and sisters deserve a mic drop for that one. <laughs> <clears throat> What a beautiful way to memorialize the groomsman-like role of John the Baptist in reference to the eternal bridegroom, Jesus Christ. But there's even more glory to go around in this text because it teaches something about the church, something that we must understand, namely that the church is a she, not an it. The church is the beloved of God, the very bride of Christ and the object of his affections. You, beloved sons and daughters, are the object of Christ's deepest affections. Let me see if I can even read from Isaiah. 
without either crying or leaving from the pulpit to run a victory lap. This is what Yahweh speaks over his people through the prophet Isaiah. God is just, God is just so, so good. He says in Isaiah 6, uh, uh, excuse me, 62, verses 4 and 5, hear what the word of God has to say to you through Jesus Christ. He says, you shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called. My delight is in her. And your land married. For the delight of the Lord is in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman. So shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you not see, beloved, that in Christ, God has come to earth to collect on these very promises? John has prepared the way. Jesus is the bridegroom and you are the bride. The church is a she, not an it. Jesus stands proudly with her in her pure white gown with the fancy trimmings and lace, doting upon her with the affections of his heart. Brothers and sisters, don't treat the church as a means of your own end. For the church is an end in itself, according to Jesus. Don't hate her. Don't abuse her. Don't deprive her. Don't be eager to speak against her. Don't be eager to point out all her spots and wrinkles, Jesus is still making her holy. Don't forsake her. Don't disassociate yourself from her publicly. She is his holy bride. And indeed, she is your mother. As St. Cyprian, a third century African bishop, has said, no one can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. All right, having made it through the first two paragraphs, we come now to the heart of this passage in verses 31 through 36. It's not clear whether these verses are the editorial comments of the Apostle John or a continued quotation from John the Baptist, but the ESV, I think rightly, favors the former. The central theme is that Jesus is the supreme witness to heavenly realities because he himself literally comes from above. Just as literally as we processed the gospel into the midst of the people, Jesus comes from above. He who comes from above is above all and thus he is able to firsthand bear witness to what he has seen and heard. Verse 32. In this way, the Logos, the Word of God made flesh, comes down from heaven to reveal not only the way of salvation, but also the interior, interior life of the eternal Trinity onto the landscape of human history. Verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent, that is God the Son, utters the words of God, that is God the Father, for he gives us the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, without measure. 
What's more, the unexpected presence of this heavenly being upon the earth, the incarnation of the Son of God, causes each human soul to have to make a choice. Either to reject his testimony like so many others, verse 32, or to set our seal to this, that God is true, verse 33. Now this whole concept reminds me of a 19th century novel called Flatland. If you've ever gone to a wedding that I've preached at, you've heard me use this illustration before. Flatland is about this completely flat, two-dimensional world where the shapes have to move around each other like this, right? Because, because there's no third dimension. And, uh, well, one day this 2D world receives a three-dimensional visitor, a sphere, uh, from a 3D world called Spaceland. But, of course, uh, he looks like an ordinary circle in the context of Flatland. And the sphere tries to bear witness, to tell all the flatlanders, tries to testify to his three-dimensional world. But the 2D shapes cannot comprehend it, and the sphere is violently rejected. Now, all of this, of course, bears an eerie resemblance to Jesus' warning to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 12. If I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, I told you about circles. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? But not all the flatlanders reject the sphere. And indeed, there are many upon the earth who have received the heavenly testimony of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to receive him? What does it mean to set our personal seal to that envelope? According to scripture, it involves two things. To believe in the Son of God and to obey the Son of God. Verse 36 puts it this way. Whoever believes in the Son has, notice the present tense, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains, also present tense, on him. So the first step of faith is so crucial because when we believe and are born again by the waters of baptism in the Spirit, John 3, 5, we are immediately transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And the wrath of God is immediately and even instantaneously lifted from us. But we have already spoken much in this series about belief, so I would like to spend a few minutes on the topic of obedience and why it's also essential to a right reception of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be wondering whether this would imply that we all obey him perfectly right from the jump. That was a question that came up in catechesis this morning. And the answer is, of course not. At least I've never met such a person, and it sure enough ain't me. But the New Testament makes it plain that if our so-called faith has no bearing upon our deeds, no real traction in our lives, then we haven't even begun to believe. Why would we claim to believe in Jesus if we have no intention of following him? What's more, how can someone truly be said to adore Jesus if they have no desire to become like him? 
according to Scripture, our full salvation involves not only our initial justification by faith, but also our ongoing sanctification and indeed our ultimate glorification. Joseph Ratzinger writes, What actually saves is the full ascent of faith. But in most of us, that basic option is buried under a great deal of wood and hay and straw. Man is the recipient of divine mercy, yet this does not exonerate him from the need to be transformed. Indeed, why would we want to be exonerated from that? Encounter with the Lord is this transformation. It is the fire that burns away our dross and reforms us to be vessels of eternal joy. You want to know what God wants with you? What do you want with me? He wants to turn you into a vessel of eternal joy. Another way to put it is to say that salvation always involves healing. When Jesus performs miracles in the Gospels and tells the person, your faith has healed you, the Greek word that he uses is sozo, which means heal. It can also mean rescue. It can also mean save, which is why these verses are sometimes translated, God, your faith has saved you. Did you ever notice that? Likewise, when Jesus says in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, the same word, sozo, is used. Now the point, brothers and sisters, is that salvation in Christ is about more than fire insurance. It involves a whole life healing, a whole life transformation into the, in, into the image and glory of Christ, a rescue back to the intimacy of the garden where we can once again abide in the love of God as the very air we breathe. If I can use an analogy, my wife Carissa likes to garden. And I think she spends some of her best time with the Lord, uh, praying or listening to uh, scripture or whatever while she's gardening. It's a, it's a place of intimacy for her. But imagine, um, God forbid, that Carissa got in, in a terrible car accident. Um, well, the moment that the ambulance arrives would be so crucial. And I would be so relieved the moment they hook her up to the machine or they give her mouth to mouth or they revive her and put her in the vehicle and she's headed to the hospital. But that's not the end of the process, is it? She has to be brought to the hospital. Her healing needs to continue from that point. In fact, <clears throat> when she's finally released from the hospital, she'll probably have to undergo some kind of physical therapy, right? Now the church, beloved, is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. But even when she goes to physical therapy, it's not done because what we really long for is for Carissa to be able to return to her garden. Amen? For her to get back to doing what she loves, what she was made to do. My friends, if you know Jesus, you're on a healing journey. Do you understand that? A journey back to the garden. If you're on this journey, then eternal life has already begun for you. 
the same dynamics that will transform you completely on that last day are already at work in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if not, the way to get on that path is made so abundantly clear in this passage. Believe in Jesus and follow Jesus or obey Jesus. That's what you do. Pick up the Gospel of John. Read it. Believe the testimony of the Son of God. Set your seal to it and say, all right, help me to follow you. I'm going to mess up, but help me. You can start this today. So I want to challenge you all, whether you're on that journey or whether you're wondering whether you should get on that journey, this is the tangible step you can take. Pick up the Gospel of John on your own. Or even right now, maybe the Lord is speaking to your heart. Read it. Set your seal to the testimony of Jesus and follow him. Amen.